0: To learn more about CODE, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E-Health.com, or email CODE directly at Partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Eric Grotto. In today's episode, we're talking about consumerism and the revenue cycle. Our first guest, Keith Grubel from BHG Patient Lending, is here to discuss how to have productive financial conversations with patients in a time when the clinical stakes have never been higher. Later, I'll have an interview with Peter Odenwald and Zubair Ansari from Luminous Health in Maryland about how they centralize their billing office and improve their revenue cycle processes. That's all coming out after we go Beyond the News. Rich Daily is out this week, so today it's my great pleasure to fill in on the Beyond the News segment with HFMA Policy Director Chad Mulvaney. Hi, Chad.
1: Hey, Erica. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
1: We, we miss Rich, but you know, if someone's got to fill in for Rich, happy that it's you.
0: Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Telehealth is getting a lot of attention right now in this time of coronavirus, and a lot of people seem to think that the changes are going to stick after we're through this period. Do you think that's true and why?
1: You know, I think that assumption is correct for a couple of different reasons. You know, obviously, when the, the national health emergency ends and the 1135 waiver ends, CMS will roll back the telehealth expansion but I would fully expect to see a coalition of providers and health plans, many of whom are now providers and patient advocates jump in and really make an aggressive push to have Congress make the necessary legislative changes to make telehealth just healthcare the way we provide health. And there are a couple of reasons for that, right? You've got health systems and practices that hadn't sort of invested fully in the capabilities to do this, put a lot of time, money and effort to stand up the capabilities quickly to provide care virtually. So you've got part A, where sort of the one leg of the stool or the argument, then you've got the second part where you've got a whole bunch of consumers and you've probably, you know, the audience has probably also seen the visit data where there are now systems that are doing more televisits per day than they had done in the prior month. So you've got more and more consumers who are accessing care in this convenient way. And assuming they're having good experiences with it, they're going to want that capability to be there, particularly in the Medicare program with the AARP and how influential they are in D.C. And the third argument I could make is a public health argument as to why this should stay. Because, you know, there is a school of thought that I think is probably right, that until we have a vaccine, we are going to end up with sort of maybe not even isolated, but again, sort of secondary or tertiary outbreaks of COVID. So we're going to need to, again, go kind of shelter in place and provide care virtually again. So the fact that you've got this system set up and it's the way we deliver care just takes the response time, just makes it easier to respond in case you have an additional flare up. So I think all three of those things will come together and motivate Congress to make the necessary changes just to change the Medicare rules or the statute around Medicare.
0: What do you think are the implications beyond delivering care virtually? Anything to look at there?
1: You know, everybody's sort of focused on this is how we're going to deliver care, but no one's had, I haven't seen really any discussion around what does this do to your typical, say, primary care clinic footprint, or what does this do to the staffing requirements? And I suspect what we'll see is that as you're starting to deliver more care virtually, you may get into Similar to what we have at HFMA or similar to what we see in other industries, where you have people come into the office for a couple of days a week, and then the physician or the nurse practitioner will see the patients where they actually need to lay hands on, but the rest of the week could potentially work from a home office. So, that shrinks down the actual physical footprint for the clinic. The other piece of it is, is if you don't have as many patients coming into the clinic, you need fewer nurses and techs to triage patients, to, you know, do the work up, collect labs, et cetera, things that you might do. So then you could repurpose those individuals to either if you're an organization involved in population health, suddenly they become, they they augment your care, your care coordinator or care navigator workforce, or maybe they just get deployed to backfill positions where you've had staff retire or leave the workforce. So I think if if systems think about how they'll deploy this and how it'll roll out creatively, I think it will change what we think of as a clinic and kind of the normal footprint and staffing model that we've historically used.
0: Well, telehealth is definitely going to be something we will keep a close watch on as this story progresses. For more stories on the latest healthcare finance news, of course, listeners can visit the news section of our website, hfma.org. Thanks so much for joining me today, Chad.
1: No, my pleasure, Erica. Always great to chat with you and certainly looking forward to next conversation.
2: If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank.
0: HFMA has been beating the drum of consumerism for a long time, and it's been a focus of everything we're doing this year. And in a time when more than 10 million Americans are newly unemployed, a consumer mindset is more important than ever. My guest today, Keith Grubel, the president of BHG Patient Lending, shared some thoughts with me recently about how to communicate sensibly and sensitively. As we record this on April 1st, 2020, so much is still up in the air about who is going to pay for what for patients with coronavirus and much of the other care like elective procedures are being pushed back because hospitals need to focus their clinical efforts elsewhere. What does all this mean for the hospital revenue cycle?
3: Well, that's such a loaded question, Erica. I think from the time you and I spoke last week, um, just a couple of days ago, the world has continued to change and evolve. CMS has rolled out advancements to their Accelerated and Advanced Payment Program to try to help some revenue get into the facilities. I know that a lot of the payers out there are starting to waive charges for COVID-19 related expenses. It's, to say the least, a very complex world to navigate from the revenue cycle perspective. Um, I think it's important to kind of break down the revenue cycle into its separate elements, if you will, because one is obviously the collection of claims from the payers, um, direct whether that's to be private payers or CMS or whomever is insuring a lot of these patients. But the other side is the patient responsibility side. As you pointed out, there's a ton of changes that are happening in the clinical environment that's forcing a lot of these kind of higher revenue procedures like the elective care procedures out of the hospital. Um I know there was some conversation earlier on where folks would say, well that's okay because they'll be back in the door sooner or later and hopefully some of the government grants and emergency campaigns to create financial flexibility in the providers and the hospitals will bail us through up until we can start figuring out how to get these high revenue elective cases back in the door. And now that's really up in the air. And this week we also changed the CMS guidelines to allow surgery centers to take a lot of not just the elective cases that are more obviously not elective at this point, but emergent, so fractures and tears and, extreme lacerations, but they're also expanding their abilities to take other often high revenue cases out of the hospital. And you're seeing some of them turn into urgent care clinics or ERs. I've heard in some cases that they're looking to turn surgery centers into birthing facilities so that they can move all of the healthy parents and healthy babies out into a more stable environment that is um, has a less potential chance of transfer infection from COVID-19. It also allows a lot of capacity, obviously, for patients into these maternity wards. So there's so much in flux right now that it really starts making it difficult to figure out how do we manage the revenue for all of this? How do we keep things moving forward? And how do we keep progressing? As I mentioned, for me, it's a couple of things. You've got to bucket out each segment. How am I collecting from the payers? How am I collecting from the patients? And the most important thing that I can say right now is that doing nothing is the biggest mistake that we can make. I know there's been a lot of conversation, comments around, do we hold off on claims? Do we hold off on collections? Do we not bill just yet? Unfortunately, if we were sitting on large cash reserves in a lot of our facilities and we had some security as to how much of a benefit the government's going to be able to provide for us, that might be a good idea. But these are all question marks. And so I petition everyone to say, we've got to be humane in these processes, but we have to continue moving forward. And figuring out what is the best thing to do in this particular moment. And nothing is not an option. We have to start figuring out how do we negotiate our pair contracts and how do we manage our claims there. And we've got to figure out how do we enhance our patient collection processes and continue collecting uh, as humanely and gently, but as consistently as possible there as well.
0: You know, this is a really stressful time for, for everybody, I think. I think, is not an exaggeration. What's the right way, though, to talk with patients about their financial responsibility?
3: A couple of things that I said. Again, communicate. It may be difficult to know exactly what their claims are going to be if it's more of a, uh, a COVID-related case. But speaking to the fact that there may be some out-of-pocket responsibility, we are not sure what it is. But we'd like to make you aware so that you're not caught off guard if later on you receive an invoice. Set the tone. We have programs that are very flexible and will help make this affordable and work with you through this process. Our biggest concern is getting you back to good health, and we will cross this bridge when that time comes. If it's a non-COVID-related case, I think you have to continue using the communication tools that you already do and enhance them, if anything. In this day and age where we, again, don't have as much certainty in our economy and in our, our um, employment rates, we've got to talk a little bit more and kind of set the expectation of there will be some sort of out-of-pocket responsibility. If the provider has a way to estimate that and provide that estimate, provide that estimate and educate them about the tools that are available. We'll create flexible programs for you to help get you through this. We want to get you back to health, but we want to set the right expectations as well. We don't want you to be caught off guard later on by a bill. Unfortunately, a lot of times the thug or the comment of out of sight, out of mind is an absolute reality. If you don't set the expectations and talk about it, if you don't at least plant the seed in a very soft, gentle way, a lot of folks will forget about the fact that they have a bill coming down the road. And by the time it gets to them, you know, we have statistics that show that one of the number one reasons that patients don't pay the bill is because they don't remember what they are. They don't feel it's right. So maybe just having this conversation sets a tone and reminds them that this is coming and creates an expectation that there is going to be an invoice. At least hopefully it helps them be prepared for that when it comes down the road.
0: Grubel had a lot more to say that we just didn't have time for here, but I want you to check out the May issue of HFM magazine. I'm working on a story about this topic and included some more of his comments there. One little note before we move on. I didn't include the sound clip here, but while Grubel and I were talking, he expressed huge appreciation for everyone working on the administrative side of healthcare right now, and I want to echo that on behalf of myself and everyone at HFMA. It's our honor to support you and advise you during this unprecedented crisis. Someone else I interviewed for that HFM story I mentioned a moment ago is Zubair Ansari, the executive director of physician reimbursement at Luminous Health, a partnership between Anna Arundel Medical Center and Doctors Community Hospital in Maryland. In that story, Ansari talks about how his organization is keeping consumerism in mind right now when many patients are out of work and struggling. In the interview you're about to hear... Ansari and Peter Odenwald, COO of the Clinical Enterprise for Luminous Health, talked to me about how they centralized the billing office in their organization. This interview was recorded before most of their employees began working remotely, but the process improvements and change management they talk about here is really good food for thought. After my question, you'll hear Odenwald speak first. Anytime you, you change your process, there can be big challenges. What were some of the challenges that you had and how did you handle them?
4: Probably the biggest challenge is in many organizations, physician reimbursement falls under the finance department of the health system. In our organization at Luminous Health, the clinical enterprise is operated separately from the other care delivery environments, meaning the hospitals. So we actually have our own RevCycle team that Zubair leaves. As we began this process, it became very important that we partnered with them so that they understood what we were doing, not that they were taking it over, not that it was going to be all rolled up in one, but that we wanted them to be on board and in agreement. Because as our system, Luminous Health, has grown through the addition of additional hospitals, it's really forced the issue of having similar, if not the same, policies as it relates to revenue cycle and you know charitable policies and things of that nature.
2: And Zubair can expand on that a little more. Just to kind of add to that, some of the challenges that we face in the industry is really this migration from trying to be a reactive entity to being more proactive. I think one of the key challenges that any organization that's trying to kind of merge their central billing operations kind of goes through is that you have to balance the consumer experience with financial accountability. If you just look back 20 years ago in the revenue cycle space, you know, your traditional walking, you know, as a patient walking into a clinic, you probably have a bill sent to your home. Well, we've migrated very far in the sense that we are now asking our consumer market prior to arrival, we're educating them more about what their financial options are. You know, each state has very rigorous uh, regulations as far as, you know, what type of payment options we can offer and what kind of medical financial assistance that we need to ensure that our patients are getting upon arrival. So I think those type of challenges are forcing us to balance that patient experience, yet also educating our patient population on what their uh, bills are going to look like so that we can meet and or exceed their expectations. Because the last thing we want is sticker shock when they get their bill. And I think Luminous Health, through this whole process, has been very successful in trying to bring the right people to the table to make sure that that is a very seamless and transparent process.
0: How was it working with staff who were used to doing one thing in their legacy offices and now might be doing something different or doing the same thing in a different way? How does that change management piece play in when it comes to staff?
4: Some of the change management that we have to really guide and lead them through is, you know, what worked as a small enterprise with very often fewer than 50 employees, doesn't necessarily work when you plug into a larger enterprise. We can always optimize systems to try and, and cover as much ground as possible. But that, that little bit of a culture shift of recognizing that you're not the whole pie, you're a piece of the pie is sometimes challenging, particularly for providers when it comes to, you know, scheduling regimens, And I also frequently find that smaller practices don't have quite as robust a compliance program as we have. And that's a necessity issue at at a large multi-specialty integrated delivery system that the smaller practices, they have the same requirements typically, but not the resources to ensure that it's being done as well.
0: As I mentioned at the top of the segment, this interview was recorded a few weeks ago before the coronavirus changed everyone's daily routines. If you want to know what Luminous Health is up to these days, again, check out the May issue of HFM out in just a few weeks. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our director of content strategy. Our president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. As always, you can reach out with your comments and questions at podcast at